Welcome to the Digital Forester Podcast, where we talk to foresters about how they are using digital technologies in their day-to-day forestry work. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Digital Forester Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elias Airy. How are you doing? I'm doing good today. It's pretty hot here in, uh, in Washington today, but I'm good. So, so, so let's, let's just jump into it. You were New York at one point, Maine another point, now maybe California, now you're in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, is this home home or is this just part of the journey? Um, you know, what happened is uh, my company went remote with COVID, as so many of them did, and we just picked the greenest place on the map. Uh, and that's how we ended up here in like the Pacific Northwest. So that's, that's awesome. And what a beautiful place to, uh, end up. But I know when we were, uh, just talking before the podcast, you were like, oh, I'm just south of Vancouver. I had to clarify, uh, well, both which Vancouver, I guess, since I know there's two there, but I think you're kind of sandwiched in between the two, but closer to the Canadian one. Yeah. I'm very close to the Canadian border. I'm just a couple miles South of it. So very cool. Very cool. So you and I met, we we're kind of saying like several years ago, you were completing your PhD um, in LIDAR and force metrics. Um, and since then, you know, you've gone down a certain path. So I'm really excited to catch up and see what you have done, but maybe to start us off, um, what got you into f- forestry? Cause I know undergrad was in ecology or something other than yeah. forestry. So, so maybe for our listeners and viewers, give us a sense of how you, how you got into this space of all, of all things. Um, well, you know, my undergrad was in ecology and my mom was a biology teacher. So that's how I ended up kind of in ecology. And, and then like, I think forest ecology was the natural next step, which is where I went for my master's uh, at the University of Maine. But I was the only one at the University of Maine at the time who had programming experience. And so uh, at the time, the university had just acquired a very expensive LIDAR acquisition, and being the only grad student who could possibly do anything about it, uh, I was kind of tasked with, with doing that. And that's that's kind of how I got funneled into remote sensing, actually. Very cool, very cool. So where did this, well, I should pause and say currently, you are the co-founder and head scientist at Renoster. So we'll get into that a little bit uh, uh, shortly, but before we get there, like, so programming, again, as we talk to people on the Digital Forester podcast, we, we see this trend that a lot of the folks maybe, I don't want to say blazing the trails, people blaze their trails in different ways, but certainly from a Digital Forester point of view, a lot of yous have coding skills. So where did, where did that really come from? Like, uh, Minecraft didn't exist in our, well, again, we're dating ourselves, but, but, but how, where did that, that interest come from? Um, that's a good question. I've, I've always enjoyed tinkering as, and, you know, as an undergrad, I did a bunch of programming with like photogrammetry for fossil collection, which is just a <laughs> tangent, but obviously parallels because this is the same technology to, to measure trees. Um, so I've just always been really passionate about like tinkering with stuff. Maybe I'm an engineer at heart, but really love the forest. So there you go. There you go. Well, well that you, you say that in jest, but sometimes I wonder with some of these, uh, digital foresters, are they really just engineers that wanted to hug trees or knew they wanted to be outside more than than at a desk who who knows so I enjoyed meeting you we were, I believe it was a conference of some sort we were chatting and I remember meeting you and you're like oh yeah I'll just code that in R and doing all this stuff and and so maybe bring us up to speed in terms of your PhD your master's PhD uh, what were you focusing on there and I think that will help us understand your your journey I guess into into industry and maybe where your interests lie today but maybe shed some light in some of that research. Yeah, um, so I did both my master's and my PhD at the University of Maine, and they were both very 
focused on remote sensing. Uh, my master's was all about identifying individual trees um, and you know trying to measure them from LIDAR point clouds, which I feel like every remote sensing scientist has done at some point. Um, everybody's got their own individual tree algorithm um, tucked away in their pocket. Um, so after my master's, I stayed on uh, for my PhD at the University of Maine, and there I was really focused on using deep learning, so kind of some of the more cutting edge neural network stuff to analyze LiDAR point clouds. Um, and, you know, I, I ended up making enhanced forest inventory maps of uh, about six states and the Canadian province of New Brunswick. Um, it was it was pretty cool stuff. I mean, I was using like three dimensional neural networks to scan the, the point clouds and identify shapes of tree crowns and stuff. And we actually still use it a little bit in Renoster. Um, and uh, after that, I kind of, uh, well, after I had made my maps and, and, and moved on, I kind of uh, then hopped into the carbon industry, so. Yeah, so, so, so for our listeners who may not be as familiar with deep learning and, and enhanced forest inventory, can you maybe, and neural networks, can you maybe explain to us lay people what a neural network is and why it's something uh, significant or why so many people are excited about this deep learning uh, AI space? Yeah, well, I guess so enhanced forest inventories are, are basically uh, developed by using airborne LIDAR to make estimates of, of forest inventory attributes that you find interesting. I'm all about carbon these days, but of course you can measure all kinds of things like tree count and basal area and whatnot. Um, traditionally, it's been done uh, by extracting useful features from the LIDAR that uh, have to do with height. So height is very correlated with a lot of the attributes we're looking at, like you know carbon and height are pretty tied together. Um, and with those features, we then create like a regression model that predicts based on the LIDAR heights, whatever we're trying to predict. So forest carbon or, or basal area. Um, what's special about deep learning is that it's able to identify its own features in the data set. And what I mean by that is that whereas before humans were basically going in and saying this is the height that was measured by the LIDAR and this is the height that we think corresponds to biomass, with deep learning, it's able to actually scan the LIDAR point cloud by itself and come up with the set of measurements that it thinks are important for estimating biomass. And so it's much more esoteric. It's much more difficult to actually uh, tease apart and see what it's measuring. But at the same time, because the algorithm itself is identifying the useful features, such as crown shapes and crown sizes, uh, it tends to be a little bit more accurate if you've got enough data. So. Very cool. Very cool. And, and so when you finish your PhD, um, like you were working in LIDAR and, and enhanced force inventory, so hot spaces, mm -hmm. um, what what you didn't go the ivory tower road and chase academia you, you kind of went the carbon market to tell, tell me that story because i'm curious to know we haven't synced up in a while so i'm even curious to know how, how did you end up where you ended up uh well i really wanted to have an impact and i didn't think hiding away in a postdoc would have a, the strongest impact in the world um and so you know i was wandering around the timber industry and and a lot of different areas but something about the startup world really like caught my attention because there is the potential there to really disrupt things and change things. Um, and so, you know, I went into to forest carbon. One of, one of the big draws for that is that it's done very manually today, uh, the world of forest carbon. And there's a lot that remote sensing can improve upon. So okay, okay, very cool, very cool. So, so I'm I'm pumped to have this conversation with you because I have to claim 
um, or represent maybe, well, I shouldn't say many of our listeners, I'll just speak for myself, but I don't understand the forced carbon, I don't want to say game as in there's some gaming, but I'll just say game for lack of a better word. Bring me up to speed. Like what, what, what's, what's going, what's been going on the last couple of years and then we'll delve into the technology and then we'll go into what Renoster is doing today. I'm assuming there's, uh, as you said, you, you want to do something with impact. I'm assuming there's that, that motivator still there. So I'm curious to know that, that journey, but, but what does the world look like right now in terms of force uh, carbon? You know, we've chatted, I've chatted with other players that are in the space or using EO and other remote sensing technologies to predict things, et cetera, and creating platforms and credits are trading. I've heard the term greenwashing used at play question marks, but, but, but what does the world look like today uh, for the newbie in the, the forest credits world? Yeah. Um, so the way the system works today is that there are, are basically three protocol bodies that create a set of rules that projects have to follow in order to be issued credits. Uh, and these aren't particularly special protocol bodies. They just kind of cropped up 15 years ago. So you've got VERA, American Carbon Registry, Climate Action Reserve are the three big ones. Um, and they create a set of rules that you basically have to follow in order to establish that your forest carbon projects are any good. Um, and you know, one of the biggest problems that you come across pretty quickly is that the protocols that they've developed are, are pretty easily gamed. Um, my time at Pachama, and perhaps I should back up and say what Pachama actually does. Uh, Pachama is a technology broker of carbon credits. And so what they do is they use remote sensing technology to analyze forest carbon credits, see which ones are good and bad, uh, and then buy the ones that are good, and then maybe resell them for some a markup. Um, you know, at my in my time at Pachama, what became very clear very quickly was that there were major quality issues with a lot of forest carbon projects out there. Uh, the internally, the company would would easily uh, reject about fifty percent of the credits, the carbon that wow. offsets that they came across. That's a stat that they're happy to share. Um, but even more than that, potentially have issues. Um, and you know, there's a thousand different ways that people can kind of put their thumb on the scale to get credits, and I'd love to dive into that in a bit. Um, but I left Pachama in in September of last year, primarily because you know, after doing all that work, after using remote sensing to analyze over a hundred different carbon projects, uh, none of that stuff was being made transparent to the public. And you know, from my perspective, the world really needs to know which carbon projects are good and bad. Um, we need a market mechanism to actually favor good credits. Um, and you know, we can get into how credits work because there's a lot of different carbon credit types. But ultimately, you know, if we really want to have a dent in climate change, we, we need to know which projects are doing well and which aren't. Uh, and so after I left Pachama, I kind of wandered around a bit. I was wondering how I could, how I could do this, maybe as an NGO. Um, I ended up joining Renaster as a co-founder. Um, and you know what we're going to be doing is basically reviewing forest carbon projects using remote sensing technology and telling you which carbon credits are good and bad. Um, so with all that said, what does it mean for a carbon credit to be good or bad? <laughs> that's, that's the real key question. You know, obviously the most, the most obvious case would be if you're trying to prevent deforestation and all the trees got cut down, but there's a, a thousand shades of nuance in, in the carbon industry. And so fundamentally there are three different forest carbon project types. 
And for the, the forestry, the deep forestry nerds out here, it kind of follows the triad concept, if you've ever, ever heard of that. Explain it to us. <laughs> so the three different types are reforestation. So basically, you go around planting trees, and those trees accumulate carbon. Uh, avoided deforestation or avoided conversion, where you're basically protecting trees that were on the chopping block, and thus you're preventing carbon from going into the atmosphere. Uh, and then there's this middle ground called improved forest management, where you're taking trees that were traditionally heavily cut over, industrially managed, and you're either pushing out rotations so that those forests accumulate more carbon, or you're just preventing any forest harvest in the future. Um, and so th those are the three project types. Um, and you know, no no particular project is better than any other. Uh, you know, there are there are issues with all three project types. Um, and really, the key then is to to figure out you know which projects are doing the the good job. Um, so I don't I, if you want to dig into to I'm happy to dig into like how... oh oh I know oh, I know you're how you're good at digging in. So 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 okay. So we've got this the space we got different bodies that are sent uh, defining what a credit means the rules per se i'm assuming that they're not standardized um well you know the rules are pretty loosey-goosey so within each of the three major bodies there's a rule set in which you can kind of pick and choose which set of rules you want to use and that's led to a lot of like potential manipulations and even at a very technical level you get to pick which curve that you you want to use in projecting forest carbon which is a little dangerous if you're letting the very people who are enrolling their carbon projects pick their own models. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I'm just surprised, as I said, I, I'm learning uh, as you're explaining this, that there isn't one body, or, or maybe this is, is this a classic, it's too early, that there's not a standardizing body that the industry, the stakeholders, the players have rallied around to say, you know what, we want organization X, whether it's an NGO or whether some some Switzerland or neutral party of such a thing could exist to say, hey, here's the ISO or the ANSI or, or whatever the spec actually um, is. Do you see something, some standardization coming or do you think it's still too early um, in this space that it's still a bit of the wild, wild west? It's definitely the wild, wild west. And I think the three that I mentioned would all claim to be the standardized body, <laughs> you know. Right. So Vera, for example, responsible for the majority of international and developing world projects, would claim to be the the, the body. Um, there have been several attempts. You know, there there is, for example, compliance credits issued by California, the California Air Resource Board, which is kind of a standardized governmental body, which tend to be a higher quality than uh, some of the credits issued by the voluntary market. Right. Um, Right. Okay. So cool. So, so definitely want to we'll get into that. Let's bring some of the technology and then I'm curious to hear about, you know, the best, worst things you you've seen, but first off, when you say you're the co-founder and Renostra, I think you're in a tech stars program as, as well, but what is, where does, where does the word Renostra uh, come? Apologies, no Latin experience from me or, or other language, but wh where does that name come from and what does it mean to you and your co-founder? Uh, well, it's Afrikaans for rhino, and my co-founder before, uh, you know, doing this, he was basically preventing poaching in South Africa, uh, and he's got some rough war stories because, you know, really in, in the back of the Jeep chasing after poachers. Wow. Um, so this is kind of a callback to, to that wow. work. Wow. Yeah. So so soon you could have drones with LiDAR lasers chasing bad actors, maybe remote controlled, who knows? Um, so, so let's bring in the technology uh, full things. We kind of touched on airborne LiDAR. 
uh, again with enhanced force inventory many listeners by now probably know everybody and anybody's using it in some shape or form i laughed when you said everyone has their own individual tree crown segmentation algorithm species typing whatever the flavor is and and those still exist and there's nothing wrong as opposed to it's a hard problem a hard nut to crack to do it uh at a consistent precision um per se but in terms of technology walk us through um you know as you're looking at Renoster and, and past work you've done, is this really the traditional, you know, we're using the Sentinels, we're using the Landsats, or or is this something more, I'm using these secret stealth satellites that no one knows about to give us better hyper, 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 multi, multi, hyper, multi-spectral, spatial, whatever resolution. Um, what's that technology look like in terms of you doing those uh, verifications, if that's the right word, or audits? Um, walk us through that. Yeah, so as, as you touched on it, Renoster right now is a, a review agency. So we, we use this technology to review. Um, you know, I there are five key elements to every forest carbon uh, project that we need to assess using technology. And we have to dip into our tool bag in a couple different areas in a couple different ways to answer these questions. Um, the first one is, is this term called additionality. And every carbon project is basically has to ask whether or not this project is justified in existing in the first place. So would these trees have been planted anyway if the project didn't exist? Uh, you know, were these trees really at risk? Now, the technology that we want to use to address that, off, you know, it, it kind of varies depending on which project type that we're looking at. But for example, we, we want to use satellite imagery to identify what the deforestation rate is outside the project, uh, you know, if the project didn't exist. And so that is basically Landsat data with forest cover estimates. Um, we want to basically be able to detect how what the probability of eucalyptus plantations being planted on the site were regardless. Um, and so that basically means, you know, looking at eucalyptus plantations in the region and, and saying, you know, this is the probability of, of a new plantation propping up. Um, the second key pillar that every forest carbon project needs is called the baseline. And this is basically an alternative scenario that the project puts forward that says, uh, this is what would have happened to the project if the project didn't exist. And this is actually what the credits are based on. So for avoided deforestation, you basically have to propose, okay, over the 40 year duration of this project, 30% of it would have been deforested. Therefore you get 30% of the credits. Okay. Um, this is a very hypothetical scenario. And there's a lot of ways that people do this right now without technology. Um, but we use uh, basically remote sensing technology to uh, identify areas outside the project that are very similar to areas inside the project and follow their outcomes over time. Um, and so there's a whole bunch that goes into that. It's kind of this, this matching algorithm to find similar areas. Um, the next big question is how much carbon is there in the forest, right? So here we are with our traditional LIDAR inventories. Um, and you know the other big question is, of course, did they actually measure the carbon properly with their inventory, which is you know where the comparisons need to come from. Um, the next thing that's often asked is is this kind of nebulous concept of leakage, uh, and leakage is this idea that if you protect some set of land, the bad guys might just go next door and cut the trees down next door, and you really haven't done anything. Uh, and you know it happens with all project types. And so, you know, again, we're kind of using tree cover estimates, and then there's a little bit of economics involved about how much timber they're taking off the marketplace that may drive timber prices. Uh, and then finally, we want to ask uh, 
the question of how long are these trees actually going to be preserved? And this is, this is a, a concept called permanence. Um, going into this are a set of, of risk models. So uh, classic fire risk models, uh, very similar to the land fire program that exists in the United States to estimate fire probability on any given year. Um, flood risk models based on you know, elevation off of rivers and then you know, historical floods that may have occurred. Um, and you know, the, alongside this, we also want to ask: Has there been deforestation inside the project that wasn't supposed to happen? So, you know, were they actually successful? So that's a juicy set of questions, and they all involve different sets of remote sensing technology. But fundamentally, we have to answer that for all the different project types. Um, it yeah. involves, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow, because uh, like just thinking of one or two factors alone, or three, my head would be spinning. But you, you got five right there, and each one I, I sense already has different flavors. That from a combinatorial point of view, it's like wow, there's a lot of things you got to analyze, and and also by the sounds of it, I could see when you said some of it's manual, I could see how some of it there's some deep learning, but also some matching that's that's happening. So thinking of that, it's like like. Is is the space working from from your point of view, or 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 maybe this term that I keep hearing people say greenwashing? What what does that mean to you, or for the layperson when someone who's interested in this space hears from the news, you know, um, that such and such, uh, you know, the ESG space, you know, they're um, concerned about greenwashing. What does that mean to the the average Joe or or Jane? Um. Well, you know, I. I Carbon credits are being issued for forest carbon projects, and, and some of them are good and some of them are bad. And when companies buy the cheapest credits or don't do their due diligence about whether or not the projects are justified and existing, uh, then they're kind of greenwashing. They're kind of saying that, okay, we're polluting, but we're doing something about it. But in reality, they're not doing anything about it. Uh, and you know, the really juicy element that we might want to get to is, you know, how do people really manipulate these projects? Because that's the fun part. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So so why don't we delve into that? Because it sounds like you've got, you've been, well, it sounds like you've been working on a postdoc, maybe without working on knowing an industry version with all this complexity. But but give us, give us um, maybe to, 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 to address that scenario, of, um, you know, different tricks. What's, maybe give me the, the, the best example that you've you've seen to date where you know this example was you know true to the spirit of of what folks are trying to do with carbon credits and then the worst one and maybe that'll give us the spectrum in terms of what the world could be uh, the, the 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 in between but maybe start with the best one in terms of you know I saw this one and, and it worked perfectly we verified it using these technologies it was all great and then we'll go to the 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 crappy shitty bleep uh, <laughs> right. by the way that was my own inserted bleep for you listeners not a not a machine uh, bleep there but yeah take it away so actually you can go on our website renoster.co and we do put all of our reviews out there so you can see which ones are the best and the worst um some of the best ones are are very conservative in their their numbers and so for example for an avoided deforestation project you know, maybe they're taking place right at the edge of the Amazon where deforestation is creeping in really quickly, but they only think that maybe 20% of the forest would have been lost. And in that case, we're running the numbers with our remote sensing algorithms and saying, for every ton that you buy, you're probably actually preventing something like two or three tons of carbon from going in the atmosphere. Um, you know, likewise, the best reforestation projects are these native reforestation efforts. Um, 
they're tricky to get off the ground, but when they when they do get off the ground and when they've got like participation from like local communities, uh, it's pretty fantastic to see. They're removing lots and lots of carbon from the atmosphere. Um, I, you know, you often I often like making the comparison of, between trees and these direct air capture technologies that are out there. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of people out there like building gigantic CO2 vacuum facilities in the middle of the desert, right? Like gigantic industrial parks. Um, the largest one out there today can remove about 4,000 tons per hectare per year, which is nothing. I mean, this is the equivalent of protecting, you know, maybe 10 hectares of rainforest for a year. Right. Um, Peanuts. So really, trees have the capacity to do a lot for us in terms of climate change. And when people get it right, it's fantastic. Um, in terms of improved forest management, you know, we see lots of cases where, you know, trees were heavily cut over and uh, now they're, you know, being left to grow again. And, and we've, we've interacted with a number of project developers who are really eager to figure out ways in which they can compute the numbers that, uh, you know, are, are reasonable. Because under the current protocols, they can really put their thumb on the scale and get as many credits as, as they want. Um, and so they're eager to, to basically say, well, we want to come up with a reasonable scenario that would get a good score under Renoster's review. Um, but we want to be able to say, all right, we're getting half as many credits. These are high quality credits. Um, right, so, right. Yeah. So, 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 so tell me about the worst, um, how the, the worst ones you've seen. And, and I have been looking on social. I know uh, watching you post a couple. So I've been learning going like, hey, this is a good one. This is not so good one. And, you know, baseline or two aggressive things you've talked about already. But obviously there's always, well, I don't want to say bad actors, maybe actors that are not as informed, <laughs> maybe that, that's the way I'll put it, um, that are are taking advantage of some of the protocols or maybe not thinking people can verify or audit them. But but what are some of those those hacks maybe uh, that you're, <laughs> let's get into it, the, the excited part, the one you're like, oh, I can't wait to tell you about these ones. Uh, give, give it to us. Well, it's interesting you say bad actors because I've met very few bad people in this space. But, you know, the thing is the carbon credits sell for so little that in order to make these pro these these projects really financially viable and really like benefit the community or or make them work, they kind of have to squeeze as many credits out of them as possible. And so they they all go into this thinking like these credits are going to the right place. It's really important. We, what we're doing is really good work. We're protecting the rainforest. Let's make this work by, you know, getting as much out of it as we can. Um, so, you know, in terms of the juicy details, you know, I think one of the things I like to do is break it down into the three project types again. Uh, in terms of reforestation, the biggest issues that we come across are trees that were being planted for timber anyway. So timber companies going around planting these trees and then getting credits as like a cherry on top. Now, this is really problematic. You know, the trees are sequestering carbon from the atmosphere, but if they were always going to go in the ground, then that's not really a, a removal of anything that wasn't going to take place. Um, and, you know, uh, yeah. So the other thing that we see with reforestation is, you know, we often see trees that are being planted on land that was maybe recently deforested. So we don't want people chopping down native forests and then just replanting trees and getting, you know, getting money for that. Um, and then, you know, sometimes these reforestation efforts are not necessarily successful and the inventory techniques that they use to measure the carbon 
um, you know, kind of overstates their success. And so those are the things that we're looking for for reforestation. For improved forest management, uh, to be clear, improved forest management most often happens in, the Can in Canada, the US, and Mexico. Um, what we see a lot are trees that were already protected. And this is something that's been kind of already highlighted by the industry at large. So there's been a number of, of big news articles that have been written about the fact that uh, a lot of improved forest management projects are basically taking place on land that was already owned by conservation organizations. So there are instances of the Nature Conservancy owning land for the last hundred years, conserving it the whole time, and enrolling for forest carbon offsets with the claim that they're protecting these trees and these trees would have been cut down if not for the project. Um, you know, there's a good chunk of improved forest management projects out there that are, that are doing this. And again, the reason that this happens is that the Nature Conservancy thinks that they're doing a good job. They're not awful people. They think that they're doing a good job and they should be, you know, uh, incentivized for it. And the credits, they just don't sell for enough to, to make it so that anyone who's, who's doing this kind of financially uh, can really make a profit a lot of the time. Another thing that we see with improved forest management is baseline manipulation. And what I mean by that is that, like I said, you have to basically describe a scenario of what likely would have happened on the project if the project didn't exist. And so we see people calling for very aggressive clear cuts, for example. Maybe you're in like rural Vermont where clear cutting on a large scale would be like silvicultural suicide. Um, the project would claim that if the project didn't exist, they would have clear cut all the land. And that just doesn't seem very likely based on what happens in the region. Uh, and then finally for improved forest management, another little bit of manipulation that we see that is definitely more sinister than the others is that people will often draw the project boundaries just around the trees that they weren't able to harvest. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can share my screen if you want to see an example, but we're on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this will include projects in Alaska that are taking place on teeny little islands off the coast, not big islands, really small ones where you'd have to take a little barge out. You know, projects where the majority of their trees are in like deep ravines that they couldn't reach along roads or developments, that kind of thing. So, so that's improved forest management <laughs> and we're moving, we're getting closer to the end here. Uh, in terms of avoided deforestation, and these are the projects that mostly take place in the developing world. Um, one of the biggest things that we see are projects that fail to actually stop deforestation. Um, and you know, it makes sense, right? Like it's not always gonna be successful. This is okay with us, as long as this is properly accounted for by the project's own accounting. And the thing is, there's a number of ways in which they can kind of maybe use worse maps to estimate deforestation loss. Maybe they'll use the Brazilian national government estimates of, of deforestation, which are a little bit suspicious compared to peer reviewed literature. Um, and so we wanna make sure that if there is deforestation taking place inside the project that it's, it's actually you know, being accounted for. Uh, the other thing we see are overly aggressive baselines. So some of the, the most aggressive projects are taking place in like arid mountain ranges where you'd never really wanna convert that land to pasture. Uh, and yet that's what's being claimed is, is likely to happen. Um, and then, you know, sometimes again, a little bit more sinister is they'll, they'll mess with the project boundaries. So yeah. uh, one thing you can do under certain protocols is you can actually change the, the actual area that you've committed to protect. And so deforestation will happen. They just walk back their protection. Deforestation happens again. They just walk back their, their commitments. 
again and again and again, spatially, mind you. So they're actually committing to protecting less. Well, every year they're still getting credits issued. So oh, that's wow. problematic. So that's, so that's the juicy details. <laughs> yeah, no, fascinating. It's like, you know, part of me listening to you, I'm kind of like, are, are, are we, uh, is this a half glass full, half glass empty? We're at that stage where we're trying to do better. And, and as you said, there's not necessarily bad actors. It's maybe people accidentally using different data sources and maybe they don't even know there's other data sources available to them. But I guess thinking of uh, one thing you mentioned that I've heard twice on this where you're saying, um, the price of the credit isn't sufficiently high enough. What what would it take to get that price higher? Because I assume that would change the carbon market dynamics a little bit. And, and maybe this is a uh, you know a, a newbie question, but but when you mentioned that a couple of times, it's kind of thinking, well, if they're all trying to get more, what would it take to increase the value of that credit? Yeah. So it's hard to do the math on some of these, but for reforestation, that's a fairly simple example. And what I can tell you is that it usually costs the equivalent of about $30 a ton to plant trees and just walk away from them. Um, you know, credits right now, they're not quite selling for that much. They're selling for like 20 or so. Okay. Um, that's not even accounting for the, the competing with timber. So if you're going to plant trees and you actually want to incentivize somebody to keep those trees around, you're, you have to talk like 50 to $75 a ton in order to really compete with the prices that you can get from the timber. Um, but here's the thing, because the process is so very manual right now and so very difficult to actually deal with, um, the, the, the cost of actually enrolling for these projects is tens of thousands of dollars. And what's actually happened is in the United States, for example, you typically need to own, sorry for the American units, you need to own about 2000 acres of land uh, in order to break even on these improved forest management projects. Okay. And so that's locked out a massive number of small, you know, family woodlots, right? Yep. Um, the reason for this is that there's this very like manual process of having to go and place very expensive permanent sample plots on these, these lands. Um, they, the registry bodies right now kind of only accept inventories being done by a certain set of companies that they've kind of pre-approved. So you can't just go to your state forester and, and get them to go do an inventory. Um, and, and so this is really where the technology can shine because, you know, LIDAR already exists over most of the developed world. We can yeah. already be making these carbon estimates. Uh, we can maybe like supplement it with some sentinel imagery to say like what's happened since the LIDAR was flown. Uh, and potentially we could be making these carbon estimates and unlocking this, this management option for millions of small landowners in the US and Canada and elsewhere too. Interesting, interesting. So is that the the play or the vision for Renostra? I'm thinking uh, you're you're a startup, obviously, you got to make money to, to to survive. So what's the value proposition for Renostra in this space? Is it taking some of the algorithms, the brain trust uh, of you and automating and taking some of these manual things and making them more easier? Or, or is it a different avenue as the one you just described? What, 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 what why would someone call uh, Dr. Ari up from Renoster to help do this verification? Well, right now, again, we're focused on reviewing existing projects. So somebody would call me up because they're interested in buying offsets for their company and they really wanna make sure that they buy the right ones. Um, I, I think we want to become a, a, a thought leader in this space and eventually propose the technologies that can be used to actually issue credits. Um, 
you know, we're kind of almost there already with kind of the technology that we're using to verify the credits, but there are some, some really difficult um, question marks still behind, you know, how would we use this technology? Um, and I know you've got a deeply nerdy audience. So I, I, I would love to actually like describe what I think are some of the, the Go hitches. for it, go yeah. for it. So, you know, one of the things that I think has been used as an excuse for not using LIDAR for forest inventories and carbon projects is that the uncertainty estimates are really hard to pin down. And you can get uncertainty for a single estimate if you, you know, at a pixel level based on your RMSE for your model. But if you make a, a, a you know, if you make a map of a project area, getting that project area uncertainty is really tricky. And so this is one of the things that, you know, we're trying to figure out. Um, it, it deals with like spatial autocorrelation because like, you know, maybe you're training a model over a huge area and you're applying it to one little forest and all of your uncertainties are going to be correlated. So it's going to be a much higher uncertainty than you might think. Um, so that's one of the biggest issues that has been used by some of the industry so far to kind of, you know, uh, you know uh, disparage remote sensing. Um, you know, another another big question I think out there is how do we propose, how do we use all, all of this remote sensing data to propose what likely would have happened to this forest? Now, Renoster has its approach. It uses like a nearest neighbor matching algorithm. Is that the best way of doing it? Uh, is there some like fancy deep learning thing that could be used to predict where deforestation is going to happen next? Uh, it's kind of kind of an open question, I think. So yeah, interesting, interesting. So, so thinking of that and thinking of the technology side, because you're kind of bringing us into that, what the future could look like. You've mentioned, you know, Continental USA, um, flown already. You know, the three debt program. There's other uh, programs, um, lots of EO happening. That's today. So maybe as we look out, let's say two to three years out, and 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 let's say somebody came and said, Elias, here's like a bucket load of dollars and, and go ahead, build me this, 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 let's say the, for, for the U S and uh, America continental wide verification system that's powered by geospatial and AI, all the buzzwords. <laughs> do you have the technology now to do it? Or, or is there something that you're missing that you feel like I, 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 we need to fill these gaps? And if so, what are those, what are those, what are those gaps that you see from, from your seat? Yeah, I mean, I, I think largely we do have the technology now. I think the two gaps that I talked about are probably the biggest ones. So for example, we have the technology now to say how much carbon there is in the forest, right? Maybe we're, we're having a harder time with uncertainty estimates. Uh, we probably have the technology to say what likely would have happened to the forest based on what's happening in the surroundings and based on what's happened in the past. So here we're taking like historical Landsat data or something like that. Um, we have the technology to monitor the forest on a high frequency basis. So even with the satellites in orbit now, I, we can do that fairly well, at least in terms of deforestation. Um, you know, I, I think that the missing piece is, is, is probably buy-in from the carbon world. Uh, I think NCX has kind of struggled with that because they, they're using this technology to try to issue carbon credits and the challenge is convincing people. Um, and, and, you know, there are a couple of technicals like the uncertainty estimation th that I, I think needs to be kind of hammered out a little bit. Um, right. Yeah. right. So, so thinking of, uh, you know, for some of our listeners that may not be as familiar with, with the Earth observation uh, space, I always pick on my sister, uh, by the way, it's kind of a running joke now. Sorry, Jen, but um, Landsat, Landsat, 
dates back several years. They opened up their archives and uh, because you keep it in for, you know, what happened. And there's that temporal component that we're talking about that really you got to go backwards or wait long enough to then look backwards. But the Landsat, tell me your thoughts when they open that up for the public, um, you know, tremendous legacy still going. Um, where was that? I, I'm a loaded question, but I assume that was a game changer, right? Where else do you see the need for maybe is, is open access, open source, something that's still critical in your space? Or is it more, well, no, largely, you know, what I, again, what I need for data to do this is, is already there. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, Landsat was absolutely essential for, for all, you know, because we do have to look into the past to say what likely is going to happen in the future. Um, as always with these these types of things, I think the biggest difficulty is plot data, right? So ground truth. Um, it's very frustrating to me that a lot of national forest inventories are kind of kept secret. Um, I'm thinking about like making a YouTube video on it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, the plot data used to train these. And I think one of the biggest challenges with using remote sensing to, to actually start issuing carbon credits is that people need to trust your remote sensing algorithm. and how are they going to do that? How, how are they going to make sure that you actually trained it on an appropriate set of plots, that you have an algorithm that's good for that region, if not by having some sort of public plot data set that you can validate against? You know, I've trained a lot of algorithms in my day. One of the earliest things that I ma made a mistake on as a grad student was training a, a, a LIDAR model based on plot data from only state parks where the forests were way high, you know, had way more carbon than they, they normally would. Obviously, when I go outside of state parks, the model was overestimating by 50%. We need to make sure that people aren't you know, doing that. So we need a set of standards for remote sensing models to say whether or not they're good enough, where they can be applied. And I really think we need a set of, of public ground truth data that we can be used, that can be used to, to validate. Um, when I look out there right now, the two data sets that strike me as being potential for that is you know, national forest inventory data, and then also the JEDI calibration validation data. This is a, a NASA data set that's been put together by scientists all over the world that may eventually be made public for us to, to actually play with and, and verify the, the validity of our models. So, Yeah, interesting. And, and, and for sure, it's kind of funny, um, you know, all things come back to boots still on the ground, even though we're talking about Earth observation. I know I've talked to you. A lot of foresters in my career where they're they're worried about you know having a job and i've always said hey, you, you got nothing to, to worry about the boots always need to be on the ground it's interesting you bring up the plot side because at times i wondered when you think about openness and transparency i'm thinking um well i'm gonna go cruise my own whatever hectare 400 square meter again acres whatever plot to compare and see if apples what you pump out is actually what I cruised or, or measured in the field. At times, I wonder, when you think about openness, transparency, do we need to move to more of a, uh, not, I don't like the word democratization. I, I hear it too often as a buzzword, but maybe volunteer geographic information. You know, you have people that you can pay to go bird for you or, or record something, right? Is this something, an opportunity to crowdsource? Maybe some of this data? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I've done a lot of forest mensuration work in my time, and it's not an easy thing to crowdsource. <laughs> um, you know, I've I've had I, you know, can can we get to the point where somebody is taking a cell phone and like doing a three hundred and sixty sweep and getting a forest measurement from that? 
yeah, I think we're getting closer to that. Maybe not right now, but I think that's in the near future. Okay. Um, okay. Well, so so that's a good segue. Um, five to ten years out, what 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 starts getting you excited? Looking into your crystal ball, you know, you're in the weeds, thick of it. You got the technical chops to code. You're you've lived, uh, you know, seeing all these uh, the circus, if we call it. That's not said in a bad way, as opposed to lots of different uh, things, uh, shiny balls in the air. But bring us out to five years. What what's getting you excited? Whether at the EO, whether it's on pure geospatial, or, or what what gets you excited five years out, a little further out? Yeah. So I mean, from a remote sensing point of view, what gets me excited is ways that we can replace airborne lidar as the king of carbon estimation, because lidar is oftentimes about as expensive as a field inventory itself. And so for all my like prognosticating about how we can use LIDAR, uh, unless you're actually using the public data sets, uh, you're kind of out of luck. I mean, you might as well oftentimes go measure trace. So I think there are a number of technologies that are kind of on the horizon that might be able to replace LIDAR. Um, I get most excited about the ones that are in orbit because, you know, yeah, sure, a drone could, could fly. A drone isn't necessarily going to cover 50,000 hectares in Papua New Guinea. Maybe it could. <laughs> um, so, you know, in terms of technologies that are in orbit now that really haven't been tested or could be, I, I think stereo high resolution satellite imagery has a lot of promise. So there's a number of companies out there like Planet and Maxar that are starting to offer really high resolution stereo images that let you create three-dimensional reconstructions of the forest. Um, and I don't think that they've really been tested to see whether or not we can get the same level of accuracies from LIDAR. Another technology that's brand new is really super high resolution radar. Um, so companies like ISI are kind of out there and URSA, they're out there collecting sub-meter resolution radar. And now from a traditional remote sensing point of view, the kind of radar that they collect, the X-band radar, it just bounces right off the surface. And so people have been a little bit dismissive of it in the past. But their radar is so high resolution that you're actually able to see, you know, the branches and tree crowns of individual trees. And so I have to think that there's more information in that. Um, I also get very excited about the ESA's biomass mission. Maybe it's it, this is a radar mission that's coming up. It's a totally different type of radar than what's been out there. It's, it's called P-band radar. And looking at some of the the early data that they're collecting from from airplanes that are supposed to simulate it. It basically looks like a biomass map already. It looks like a carbon map. Um, so that's what gets me excited. I, um, there are, you know, I think there's a lot of people working with Jedi. I'm not entirely convinced that's like the holy grail solution yet. Uh, maybe that could factor into it. So that's on the remote sensing side. We need scalable alternatives to airborne LIDAR for collecting forest inventories all over the world. Um, on the carbon side, we really need to reduce the size and difficulty of enrolling for forest carbon offsets. Uh, you know, right now there are so many landowners worldwide, whether they're a small landowner in Brazil who's considering, you know, chopping down their, their forest or in the US or Canada. Um, what we really need is, is like a platform in which they can very easily sign up and almost next day sign a five-year contract to preserve their forest and get issued credits. And I know NCX has, has been working on this and not, not quite. Haven't, haven't got the buy-in for that yet. But really what I what I envision as being like the best option is kind of a, a scenario like Zillow or Redfin, where you can go on this, this website and zoom into your property and, and get an estimate right there of how much you can be making by conserving your forest. 
and and that would incentivize forest conservation as a as a management option for millions of of small landowners i think so that's what gets me excited yeah yeah very cool well it's amazing that as I, I talk with a lot of people, success ultimately boils down to something that's simple and easy to use. Obviously, there's a lot of science behind it, but it seems like the barriers to a lot of these things are um, maybe nerds trying to do user user experience or UI designers. It, it's not simple. It's not intuitive for people. So I'm fascinated that uh, a lot of our problems today, we're, we're kind of handcuffing ourselves as trying to solve them, but maybe there's some easier ways going forward. So, so, so very cool. So now I'm going to stretch you up further. I, I know we're getting close to time, but I'm going to stretch you even further because uh, again, you and I are nerds, but let's go 10 years out. What does the world need to look like for you and the technologies that are missing? Because again, I know you're following it. It's like, I know a lot of some of our listeners are like, uh, you know, the P-band, X-band radar, what does that even mean? You know, he's talking about these things I haven't even heard about hey, we can go use the Google. That's what it's called. And yeah, I'm dating myself because I say the Google, not just Google. But if we go really far out, what do you think the world could look like? Is it that automated platform that's just everybody in their devices, clickety-clack, I got five acres here. Yep, I'm going to sign, boom, I got money coming in via crypto into my my wallet and I, I'm good. Is that where the world's going? or, or and, and how do you reconcile that with, other drivers, like, as you mentioned with uh, Timber, it's like, you know, there's external competing factors, but maybe 10 years ago, what, what would that world look like for you? Or what would you like that world to look like? Um, well, you know, like I said, I think it should be extremely easy as a management option for, for conserving your forest. And it really isn't right now, right? You have to just do so much in-depth paperwork and, and and it takes something like an average of nine to 18 months just to enroll for forest credits. Um, so, you know, something that makes it extremely easy as a, an appealing management option would make it as a real good alternative to timber for a lot of small landowners who are maybe not as engaged as uh, like the rest of us in how they're managing their land, right? They're kind of just go, going with what their local forester says or something, which, you know, if, if you give them an option to conserve their forest, they might be more interested. Um, in terms of remote sensing, I mean, I, I envision a world in which we just know everything about the forest. And, you know, I think we're, we're, we're slowly getting there. I mean, I, I can envision a world in which LIDAR is flown or acquired from space using like single photon LIDAR uh, on a very high frequency basis, like every, every five years or something. Uh, and from that, we're able to say exactly what's happening to the forest, you know, everywhere on Earth. Uh, you know, a lot of the problems that I've, we've highlighted in this podcast are, is it's all about transparency. It's all about not actually, you know, the, the end purchaser not actually knowing what's going on in the, in the forest that they're supporting. Uh, and if that can be solved with, you know, earth observation, that's, that's the ideal. So. There you go. Very cool. Very cool. Any topics we haven't touched on? Because I know, the, again, you can sense the passion in Elias's voice as he talks about this. He's an expert. He's you know, he doesn't get the head scientist hat at, at, at companies he's worked at uh, and even at uh, the new uh, Renoster company. So uh, this is a guy who knows what's going on. But is there anything, thinking of our, our, our listenership, viewership, any pearls of wisdoms that you would want to give them? Or if you're thinking of maybe um, talking to someone who's who's listening, going like, hey, it's like, you know, I want to get involved with the game as as someone who's um, benefiting from those credits or somebody who's on the technology side, any pro tips for, for, for any folks or some, something we haven't covered for uh, that you wanted to touch on? No, I think we've covered on a lot. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I mean, if, if you're looking to get into this space, I think there's a lot of companies that are looking to kind of be disruptive here. And I, we'll see which one comes out ahead. Um, it's, it's pretty difficult to get in the space right now, but hope, hope at, you know, as a small landowner, it's, it's pretty difficult to enroll, but hopefully in another couple of years, it'll get way easier for you. For sure. And maybe Renoster will be at the, the front of the line. I can hope, there, I can hope so. so. There you go. There you go. You gotta, you gotta always dream there as uh, others have said, there's only possibilities. I'm stealing uh, Ule Gellin from Air Force. She's comment there that there, there's only possibilities. So what, what better outlook to have than, than that so for folks who want to as we wind down for folks who want to get a hold of you whether to to take advantage of your your verification services or or, or whatnot how do they get a hold of you what's the best way social uh email website what's the best way they can find you uh, elias yeah so uh i never i didn't actually say i have my own little youtube series in which i go on there you go make a plug give a plug <laughs> Yeah, if you're looking to learn more about how forest carbon works, I, I do have a YouTube series, which is much less polished than this podcast, by the way, but um, it, it goes into like how these things work. You're welcome to contact me through LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, go on our website, renoster.co. Um, and, uh, you know, there you can see, you know, all of our rankings, how we use remote sensing technology to evaluate carbon projects um, and kind of kind of see what we're all about. And of course, you can contact me through the website, too. Well, well, there you go. So uh, Elias Airy, uh, search on LinkedIn, uh, renoster.co. So R-E-N-O-S-T-E-R. Did I get that right? <laughs> .co. All right. Your, your pausing was making me think I got it wrong. Um, but those are best ways to get a hold of Dr. Elias uh, Airy. So, hey, it was awesome to connect with you. Love this conversation. I learned so much. Super pumped to, to see your outlook on the EO space. You know, some some folks are saying, oh, EO is something coming to age, but there's just so much innovation um, in that space. And, and as you said, some will be winners, some will be, uh, um, you know, not not the, the first ones to the, the finish line, I guess, might be the polite way of uh, putting it. Um, but thanks so much for sharing your thoughts. Really appreciate it. All the best up in uh, Pacific Northwestern. Looking forward to connecting with you uh, at some point. And as you said, those YouTubes are awesome. I even watch them. They're totally cool. I, I'm, I, I always enjoy learning more and more. So Elias, thanks very much for your time and uh, all the best. Thanks for having me. Cool. Bye for now.